You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to turn in your Bibles first this morning to Psalm 19. For the director of music, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run its course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And then if you would turn to Amos 5. Hear this, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. The city that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will have only a hundred left. The town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not seek Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. You who turn justice into bitterness, and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turned blackness into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the water of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, although you've built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you've planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes. You deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph 
Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God Almighty, says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. The text for this sermon this morning is Amos 5, the verses 7 through 15. We'll read that through together again. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turned blackness into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. You hate the one who reproves in court, despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes, and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times. The times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, a lot of what's happening in our text this morning is talking about the good life. Now in the history of man... There have been all sorts of competing ideas about the good life and what it might be. The ancient Greeks talked about the philosopher's life. The monks talked about the contemplative life. The Romans talked about the honorable life. The hedonist talks about the pleasurable life. The materialist talks about the luxurious life, etc., 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 But you don't have to be a philosopher or a deep thinker to have some ideas in your head about what the good life really is. How many of us haven't sat at a pool in some warm, sunny, southern destination and thought, now this is the life? For some of us, this ideal life remains a dream, a hope, an expectation perhaps, and Some of us think that it is a reality for us even now. I think that the Israelites that Amos was addressing, or is addressing in this book, thought that they were living the good life. They had stone mansions and lush vineyards. That's mentioned in our text. They had summer homes and winter homes. They had houses adorned with ivory and couches adorned with ivory. And they had rich and lavish feasts. They thought they had arrived. Ah, the good life. But the life that they thought was so great was actually no life at all. The poor were trampled. The weak were stomped on. And the righteous were oppressed. Their lives had no peace. And no harmony. Rather than living a good life with their fellow man and with God, they overturned justice. They, they upset the harmony. They created discord and disharmony in their community. In their pursuit of their own good life, they abandoned justice. And in doing so, 
they abandoned God. The life they had was no life at all. Because no self-made, self-styled, or self-imagined good life is any life. God is the author of life. God is the author of true life. God is the author of the good life. And it's found only in Him. The life that's founded on injustice and unrighteousness is a life that is doomed to death. Only a life that seeks God's justice, God's ways, God's rule, God's righteousness is the good life. The life that sees and trusts in God's justice displayed in Jesus Christ, His Son. Only that life that seeks that is the good life, the the blessed life, the true life. And so I proclaim the Word of God to you this morning under this theme, Seek justice and live. Seek justice and live the good life. We'll see first that justice is ordained by God. Secondly, we'll see that justice was rejected by Israel. And third, we'll see that justice is renewed by the church. And in doing so, so is life. So seek justice and live. Justice, that is, that is ordained by God. Perhaps what I'm going to say is obvious to most of us, But it's still worth highlighting because even if we know it, we can so often forget this fact. And that is what the Lord repeatedly says in our text, Seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. What backs up that statement is this fact, that the Lord is the source of life. He's the one who has life in himself. He's the one who gives life, and he's the one who maintains life. Put it this way, without God, you will die. The life that is in you will shrivel up, and you'll lose any spark or flame of true life that you might have ever had. Of course, you realize that I'm not talking about mere existence. I'm not talking about just a beating heart and a working brain. I'm talking about spiritual life, true life, eternal life. I'm talking about the life that's characterized by glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. I'm talking about that imperishable life that's intimately connected to Jesus Christ and that's fed daily through His Word and Spirit. That's the life that is in God and that God offers to all those who truly seek Him. Well, this this life, this true life, spiritual life, is maintained through the justice of God. God maintains this life through His justice. And His justice is His establishing of peace and harmony and equity. His justice is, as we read in the call to worship, doing what is right and good. You see, God has ordained justice in this whole universe. That's what Psalm 19 is all about. God is the creator of order and harmony. He's the God who has created beautiful harmony in the heavens, which display the glory of Him. And this same harmony and order, again, that's what's highlighted in Psalm 19, first the harmony in the universe that He's created, and then the harmony and the order reflected in His law, 
His justice is also displayed in his perfect law. That's why Deuteronomy 8 verse 1 says, Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you so that you may live and may increase and possess the land that the Lord promised to your forefathers. The life that is lived close to God, that obeys his commandments, that reflects his justice, is the one that truly experiences life. The one that experiences peace with God. The one that lives in harmony with others. The one that maintains equity and justice in its relationships. Well, that idea that God has ordained justice and that he's given it to us that we might enjoy life with him and with each other, that's exactly what the Israelites had forgotten. They thought they were living their best life now with all their fancy homes and their lush vineyards. They thought, look at verse 14, they thought that God was with them. They thought God was with them because they were experiencing all these material blessings. They, they were living the good life. But they had forgotten that the good life wasn't determined by their standards. It was determined by God's. You see, that is why Amos interrupts so abruptly here in, in verse 8 of our text. Some explainers of this passage, they tie themselves in knots trying to figure out why Amos so suddenly and abruptly just changes the topic. He gives us no, no warning. He just inserts this part about who God is and, and what he has done. But the answer is, is this, to this question. It's not that difficult. You interrupt something abruptly when you have something very important to say. If you're watching TV and all of a sudden you hear, we interrupt this program with a special announcement, you can be sure that that announcement is pretty important. Otherwise, they wouldn't interrupt your program. Well, the issue is this. This is the important thing that Amos is saying. The Israelites, and especially their leadership, thought they could turn justice upside down. They thought they could just turn things on their head and pursue their own goals. They could turn justice to bitterness, as we read in verse 7. And we see the same thing happening today as well, all over the place. We can take political leaders as an example. A political leader who comes in thinks that he can just do things his own way. Or a government in power thinks they can establish rules that will make justice mean a certain thing. But Amos interjects to this idea, to the idea that the Israelites have. He says, you think you can turn justice on its head? You think it works like that? God is the one who turns the day into night and who turns the night into day. You think that you can determine the moral order of the universe? God is the one who has created the universe and has put the order in it with all its beautiful harmony and symmetry. You think that you're going to cast judgment on the poor and the oppressed? You think that you can miscarry justice in the courts? God is the one who can send a flood on this world in an instant. In fact, God is the one who has sent a flood on this world. There's only one God in this universe. And there's only one person who is in control and justice and who sets the standards for what that is. And the Lord is his name. 
You see, that's the very reality that we remembered this past week on Remembrance Day. Many today deny it. But the reality is that so many men and women died in the Second World War because they believed in God's rule, in God's justice. And they wouldn't let the Nazi, the Nazis come in and overturn that justice. And so they fought for God's justice as they battled against the Germans and against the other Axis countries. But yet at the same time, brothers and sisters, we need to remember that the Lord is not a a vindictive legalist who only wants to punish people. That's not what his justice is all about. Not at all. God is not the great ogre in the sky who looks down and wants to punish us. That's, That's Satan. That's what he wants to do. God is the God of life. The God who wants to impart blessings to his people. And that's why he maintains justice. Not ultimately to punish, but to promote life. And that's why he shows his people the way of justice. So that we too can have life. So that we can live in harmony with him. And with our fellow man. You see, justice isn't ultimately about following the rules. Justice is about love. It's about people. It's about how we treat treat people. That makes sense, doesn't it? God isn't a legalist. He doesn't expect us to be legalists. We follow the laws of God. We maintain His justice primarily out of love and concern for our fellow man, for our neighbor. Justice is about love and people. It's about seeing people through God's eyes. Seeing them as God sees them. It's about upholding their dignity when they're oppressed. It's about bringing down their pride when it gets too high. You can think of those texts that God humbles the proud and he lifts up those who are brokenhearted. Well, those texts which are scattered throughout the Bible are really getting at the heart of what justice is. You see, at the time before the fall, God gave to men and women what they deserved. But in the time after the fall, when everything was set upside down by sin, when justice was miscarried, God now in His justice is all about restoring that balance. It's about raising up those who are too low and bringing down those who are too high. It's about establishing peace and harmony and life. That's God's justice at work. That's justice ordained by God. But this justice was rejected by Israel. Whereas God gave his justice, his his law, his decrees, his made known his ways to Israel to create peace and harmony and to give them the good life, the Israelites were turning it all upside down. They were casting righteousness to the ground. They were turning justice into bitterness. That means that they were neglecting their relationships with their fellow humans, with their fellow Israelites, and they were just thus rejecting their relationship with God in heaven. Their lack of concern for the poor, their oppressing the oppressed, was in fact not only a miscarriage of justice, it was an outright rejection of their heavenly Father and his rules, and his ways. Let's look at what they were doing. Verse 10. 
They hated the one who reproved in court. They despised him who tells the truth. Rather than upholding justice in the courts, the the place where justice was to be upheld, they were overturning it there and they hated those who spoke the truth. In verse 11, rather than showing compassion on the poor, rather than lifting them up and helping them out, they were trampling on the poor for their own profit, forcing them to give them grain. Verse 12, rather than idealizing the righteous and looking to their godliness as an example for all the people, they were oppressing the righteous and they favored the liars and the cheats by taking bribes. You see, in the whole fabric of their society, justice was turned over and peace and harmony was destroyed. But why were the Israelites doing this? Was it out of spite for the poor? Were they just horrible, horrible people who just liked to, to trample on those who were already down? Well, no, not exactly. Rather, they were oppressing the poor to their own advantage. That is, they were pursuing the good life. A good life of their own creation, of their own making, at the expense of other people. That's what verse 11 is talking about. They want stone mansions. They want material luxuries. They want lush vineyards. They want the good life. They want to be rich. But their pursuit of this good life meant destroying peace and harmony in their community. Of course it did. Their good life was the ideal to be pursued. And their money had to come from somewhere. So they got it wherever they could. They they stomped on the heads of the poor to enrich themselves because the poor are vulnerable. That's why you stomp on their heads and not the rich. They... Their pursuit of self, their self-styled good life meant that they necessarily had to overturn justice because it wasn't God's way. You see, any version of a life that's opposed to the true life that God alone gives will result in injustice and discord rather than justice, peace, and harmony. The Israelites' version of the good life was stone mansions and beautiful vineyards, and lavish feasts. In the New Testament, we see the Pharisees, they bring a different version of what the good life looks like. Theirs was strict, legalistic observance of the law and of other laws. That was their version of the good life. But the Lord Jesus chastised them because they put burdens that were too heavy for the people to carry. Because they neglected the weightier matters of the law, they neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You see? They had a different version of the good life, but they still had to overturn justice in order to pursue it. In order to pursue their self-made version of what the good life should be. Do you see this happening in your own life? If you're in high school and you think that popularity will certainly give you the life that you want. And so you put down your fellow students, especially those who have some noticeable defect. You put them down in order to make yourself look better and become more popular. Or you're in business and you you manipulate, you cut corners, you even cheat and steal to improve your bottom line because that's what it's all about, right? 
or in your home, you, you think that your own peace and harmony is, is what you need. Your own good life. And so you speak harshly with your children. Or you neglect your wife so that you can have what you think is the good life. But all these things actually only serve to create disharmony and disunity. It creates injustice. The good life is not found in yourself or in your own making. The good life, the true life, is found only in God. He's the one who who has life in himself, who gives it. And so it reflects his standards of justice, of peace and harmony. Of course, then rejecting his standards means rejecting the life that he gives. And ultimately, it means rejecting him. You see that illustrated in verse 10 of our text. The unjust Israelites, they hated the one who told the truth. Their selfish desires conflicted with God, and so they not only hated those who stood up for the truth, they hated truth itself. They hated God's standards. They hated God's truth. They rejected the way that God had made the world. They figured they had a better way. And so they rejected truth, and they didn't want anything to do with it. But the irony of what they're doing in hating those who tell the truth is that you can't really reject the truth, can you? It'll always come back to get you. Now, many in our time would argue that we're much better off rejecting the truth. But no matter how persuasive their arguments might be, and even though it does sound ridiculous to say that there's no such thing as truth, many philosophers today do a pretty good job of making what is quite ridiculous, sound quite good. But in the end, you can't reject it. It's the truth. It's ordained by the Almighty God of heaven and earth. And it doesn't change. The ironic thing is that those who reject God's truth and reject God's justice in their lives are the ones who are going to experience it the most in terrible ways. Amos says that even though they build stone mansions, they're not going to live in them. Someone else is going to live in them. Their precious houses are going to be stolen from them, just like they stole the grain from the poor. Your selfish pursuit of the good life, which makes you trample on the heads of others, results in your head getting trampled in the end. The result of rejecting God's justice in this life is misery. It's discord, disharmony, disunity. But since rejecting God's justice means rejecting Him, it ultimately ends in eternal punishment. If you don't want the good life that God offers, then you won't get it. But to all who do want the good life that God offers you do get it. Because God has made it possible through His Son, Jesus Christ. Because justice is renewed in the church. The good life, the true life, that God offers is found only in Jesus Christ. Now you're probably wondering, how does that work? Since we're talking about the Old Testament people here, Could they not have had life before 
Jesus Christ came into the world? Well, we need to understand that from the, the fall into sin, from the first sin, God promised a Savior who would be Jesus Christ, His Son. And so when He gave His law and He established His justice on earth, He was in fact pointing towards Jesus Christ. Justice on the earth would only find fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so all who lived according to God's law before Christ came, all who found their life in God and rejected His justice were also living in faith and hope and expectation of the time when Jesus Christ would come and would set everything straight. Only when Christ would come would the basis for justice be restored. Because only through His death on the cross would man again be at peace and harmony with God. Would man have life with God. So really, in the Old Testament, they didn't have the good life. Part of living in faith was realizing that they had not yet accomplished the good life, that there was still much more for God to do. And so they had to live in expectation of the time when the Messiah would come and when He would set everything straight in this world. The good life is found only in Christ. That's why He calls Himself the way, the truth, and the life. That's why He Himself says that I have come that they may have life, may have it to the full. Jesus Christ came so that we could have the good life. See Christ and you will live. You see, Christ embodied the good life in his own life, didn't he? Who did Christ show concern and compassion for? Was it the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes? Was it the political leaders? Was it the rich and famous? Was it the proud of the world? No. He showed compassion on the poor. He showed love to the downtrodden. He spent time with the oppressed, with sinners. In fact, his love for the oppressed is what drove him to the cross, where he gave up his life for all who realized their own poverty and need. On the cross, Christ restored God's justice by reestablishing peace and harmony with God. He bore God's wrath against sin so that sinners could experience God's love for the righteous. Christ lived the good life for us all the way to death so that we could have peace and harmony with God. And now Christ renews this life and He renews this justice in His church. You see that, don't you? The church is the place where God's understanding of justice is to be carried out in this world, because it's not going to be carried out anywhere else. The church is where the poor are to be exalted, and where the rich and proud are to be humbled. Didn't Christ exemplify that when he blasted at the scribes and Pharisees for their sins, and yet at the same time he was kind and gentle and compassionate with the prostitute because of hers? The church is to be the place where that equilibrium of justice is restored because, brothers and sisters, we're all equal in Christ. Because only in Christ do we simultaneously confess our own bankruptcy, our own poverty, and yet at the same time confess our incredible worth and riches 
Only in Christ do our incredible poverty and bankruptcy and at the same time our incredible worth and riches come together. Only there is justice restored. And so in the church, Christ renews justice in this world. In our lives, Christ renews justice in this world. That means that we have to apply ourselves to know God's standards and to apply them in our lives. And that means that we have to apply them to the world. That's why things like being involved in politics and and fighting for the rights of the unborn or of the sick are so important. But establishing God's justice in the world doesn't end there. It goes far beyond that. It extends into our daily life. And for the student who used to step on the heads of fellow students in order to make himself popular, it means that now you look out for the guy who's getting picked on or the person that stands out. Maintaining justice means looking at that person through God's eyes. God certainly cares for the person who's picked on at school. For those on the job site, it can mean much the same thing. Because bullying doesn't only happen in school. Or on the job site, it means that we don't rip off our clients anymore. Especially the ones who are unsuspecting and trusting. If you make more money because of other people's ignorance or gullibility, then you will be held accountable for that. Maintaining justice at your work means doing good work for the sake of Christ. And it means having compassion on the poor and the downtrodden. And it means that you might make less money from those who can't afford it. The ministry of mercy in our lives extends far beyond just giving our tithe at church. In our family, it means that we don't allow our selfish pursuit of our good life to take over. And instead that we, we seek God's justice in our home. It means showing love and compassion to the child who feels down. It means showing loving discipline to the child who needs correction, who wants to go her own way. It means giving your husband and your wife the, the love and respect that they're worth in Jesus Christ. It means seeking justice in our whole life. Because justice comes from God. Seek good, not evil. And then you will have life. Then the Lord Almighty will be with you. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.